0: Good morning. morning. Let's prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, again we are so thankful for your kingdom, for your love, for Jesus. We ask that your Spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, and let us draw closer to you as we study in prayer. Holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm. We're doing lesson number nine in the quarterly Hebrews, and the uh, title is Jesus the Perfect Sacrifice. And on Sunday's lesson, and we're going to jump right to Sunday, so we're already a day ahead, right? Right to Sunday. Yeah. Um, so uh, it it asked the question titled, why were sacrifices needed? Why were sacrifices needed? And, uh, you know, this is a, a confusing issue in the landscape of general Christianity. I think Adventists have a little better insight on this, but in general Christianity, this is quite confusing. A few years ago on uh, Christian radio, on Easter weekend, the, there were two theologians from a major university, Christian university, uh, discussing the purpose of the Old Testament sanctuary. and First theologian is Old Testament theologian, and he said, this is this. this is what he said about Old Testament sacrifice. He said, blood represents life, and there has to be a punishment of death or sin. So, so therefore, an animal had to take punishment and give its life, its blood, so that the offerer could, could live. That was the substitution. My, what my former professor used to call the exchange of life. The animal dies, the person lives, and that's the reason for the Old Testament sacrifice of the covenant. And then a New Testament theologian came on and said the following. In the Old Testament, the death of an animal was required to take care of the human sin problem. And now we have not the death of an animal, but the very Son of God who dies for us. And so his loss of blood is the thing whereby he succumbed on our behalf. That's uh, that's the view of many Christians about the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. Are their answers correct? No. Well, Hebrews, uh, it's strange to me because you don't have to search far in the Bible to find answers, but... Uh, Hebrews 9, 9 and 10 and verses uh, chapter 10, 3 and 4 say the following. The gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciences of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying to the time of the new order. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You don't have to read far to find that answer or... Old Testament. Oh, let's look at the Old Testament. We're an Old Testament scholar. What's the Old Testament say? Uh, Isaiah 1, 11 and verse 16 and 17. The multitude of your sacrifices. What are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings and rams and the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And then... Hosea 6.6, 6. I want your constant love, not your animal sacrifices. I would rather have my people know me than burn offerings to me. We don't have to look far to find this, do we? It's very strange. It just lets you know how deeply embedded the imperial penal view of reality is, this false construct. And the reason they stick with this idea of blood payment is because they have the wrong law model and somebody has to be punished. And if we're not being punished, then the animal has to be punished. Can we look at, uh, instead of the descriptions or, or statements that you have from Scripture, can we actually look to historical examples of people who lived in Old Testament times who were saved without doing any animal sacrifices. Naaman, I heard somebody say Naaman. Yeah. We, as, as, far, as far as Nebuchadnezzar, yes. I was going to say as far as, the, as far as the record gives us. Okay, We're not reading in and presuming. The record doesn't tell us. Jethro. Melchizedek. Nebuchadnezzar, right? The widow who sheltered Elijah. Rahab probably did, once she became part of the line and joined, probably did, we would assume, because she became part of, the, of, the, of Israel. So all she... The pardon?
1: all the Hebrews.
0: Thank you. And during the 70 years' captivity, Daniel and the three worthies, were they sacrificing a temple? Wait, the temple had been destroyed. There was no temple to... There was nothing going on. How about Esther and Mordecai? Do we have any record of them offering sacrifice? No, understand, the Bible is quite clear. Animal sacrifices were never required for salvation.
2: In fact, if you really think about it, God's heart probably hurt for them needlessly and pointlessly killing all these animals.
0: Why were they not required? Because what we just read in Hebrews, they could not cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They could not cure or remedy the sin problem. That's why. It's ineffective.
2: It was meant to show them that, but when they became needless, I said needless, but I thought I should add that when they uh, started doing the sacrificing for no good, it did no learning, it didn't do what God intended to do to the people, then you kill all these animals for no good reason because it's not saving, not teaching you anything, and all it is is just killing animals.
0: So she's more pointing out, well, then what was the point? Education. Object lesson, theater, metaphor, acted out illustration, and when it no longer taught the truth, when they no longer grasped what was trying to be taught, then it actually was no longer useful, so it needed to be done away with. Uh, First three paragraphs in our lesson say the following, unless it's Sunday's lesson. Hebrews 9.15 explains that the death of Jesus as a sacrifice had the purpose of providing Redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant in order that the people of God might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. In the the ancient Near East, a covenant between two persons or nations was a serious matter. It involved an exchange of promises under oath. It implied the assumption that the gods would punish those who broke the oath. Often these covenants were ratified through the sacrifice of an animal. For example, when God made a covenant with Abraham, the ceremony involved cutting animals in half. The parties would walk between the parts as an acknowledgement that those animals represented the fate of the party who broke the covenant. Significantly, only God walked between the animals for the purpose of communicating to Abraham that he would not break his promise was the covenant to abraham and the promise to abraham a new covenant or a new promise that hadn't been given before or was it simply the restating to a new individual and generation the promise that had been given in genesis 3:15 that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head jesus is coming and wasn't the promise to Abraham, your seed will be the blood. In other words, the same promise for the same Savior just manifested or communicated to a new person. But it's the same promise, isn't it? Yes. Abraham
2: requested, how in the world do I know that, this is, that I'm going to be the father of a large nation? And God said, I'll use a human representation to say that, hey, this promise is
0: valid. That's exactly right. So When he walked through the... That's exactly right. So if God came to speak to you, would God speak to you in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek? <laughs> but why would he not speak to you in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek? We know the Bible's written in Hebrew. Wouldn't he speak to you in Bible language?
2: <laughs> <King James first. laughs>
0: yeah. Uh, well, why wouldn't he do that? Because in order to have effective interaction with somebody, God speaks a language they can comprehend. And so in Abraham's time, what you pointed out is exactly right. This was a custom of the people. And so meeting Abraham where he was, he enacted this ritual to give Abraham assurances, to have Abraham, it's like, it's like you today might, might have a, a document signed and notarized. This was simply a custom of his culture and how people committed themselves and gave Abraham. So it's just speaking a language Abraham could understand. That's exactly correct. So, the whole human race became fallen in the persons of Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, we were all in Adam and Eve, so the whole human race is now out of harmony with God. And God, in Genesis 3, promises that he will send Messiah, 3.15, to crush the serpent's head. And provide salvation through what the Messiah would do. That's the promise. That same promise is repeated to Abraham that his seed will be the blessing to all nations of the world. Same same Messiah, not no different, same promise. When Adam when God made the promise to Adam and Eve, was there a ritual of cutting animals in half to walk through in, in Eden? no that that's not a, that's not a cultural expression or communication that Adam and Eve needed. It was something that Abraham needed. What does it say about God that God would actually stoop to communicate to Abraham in that level to participate in a human ceremony for the sake of Abraham? Think that through God didn't just Shine bright, thunder loud, believe he actually met him where he was and enacted a ceremony to help him feel secure. Do you agree with the, uh, oh, fourth paragraph. Looks at the fourth, fourth paragraph. The covenant with God, the covenant with God gave Israel access to the promised land as their inheritance. It involved how, however, a set of commandments, and the sprinkling of blood upon an altar. The sprinkling implied the de- destiny of the party who broke the covenant. This is why Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, Hebrews 9.22. Lots of things to unpack in this paragraph. Do, you, do we first agree that the covenant given to Abraham is a reaffirmation of the covenant of Genesis 3.15? Yes, we do. Okay. If that is so, then what do you make of the promise, uh, what do you make of the idea that the covenant to Israel gave them access to the promised land? That's what the lesson says, that, uh, uh, the covenant with God gave Israel access to the promised land. What does that mean? The promise to Abraham about inheriting the land, as I understand it, is a dual fulfillment prophecy. It's kind of the beginning, the, the front side of the same prophecy that Jesus gives us the backside on in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus describes together the destruction of the Jerusalem and the end of the world. That's a dual fulfillment prophecy. Jesus' dual fulfillment prophecy in, Je- in Matthew 24 describes a local regional application and a global application. The promise to... to um, Abraham, that his descendants would inherit the promised land as a dual fulfillment prophecy, a local regional one and a global one. The local regional promise was uh, your genetic descendants will inherit this little strip of land here in the Middle East for the purpose of being the genetic branch of the human family through which Messiah will come. The seed will come through your family. And they will have this land for that purpose. That's the local, regional application. The global application, though, is look east, west, north, south, as far as you can see, to the horizon to horizon, your children shall inherit the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. This is the global prophecy. The genetic descendants inherit Canaan for the purpose of fulfilling their mission to be the avenue for Messiah. But all those who accept Christ and have the faith of Abraham are children or descendants of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. And the larger promise is not that we get a strip of land in the Middle East. The larger promise is that the earth is made new and the meek shall inherit the earth. And so both both of them, I think this is a dual fulfillment prophecy and and both are considered children of Abraham. Abraham. Satan tricks much of the world today into believing that the promises made to Abraham are strictly and exclusively biological or genetic, and that it has to do with a little piece of land in the Middle East. Uh, My view is that that's a grand deception, that that has nothing to do with the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, given to Abraham, that that the prophecy of the first part, the local regional one, ended when Christ told them their house is left to them desolate. They fulfilled their purpose. Messiah came. He achieved his mission, providing all that was necessary for salvation. He ascended into heaven, and the gospel went on to the rest of the world because they rejected the Messiah. And the regional purpose of that promise was fulfilled. The rest of that stuff in the Middle East and the land, it's irrelevant. The next fulfillment is the earth being made new for the meek to inherit. Now, is there biblical references to support what I'm going to say, You can go and read the promises to Abraham and you'll see about the the different ways it's stated. Some, this land will be given to your people, and then others, look left, look north, east, south, and, and as far as you can see. Okay? I think that's the larger one. But Paul writes in Galatians 3 If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heir according to the promise. What promise? Heir according to what promise? What was the promise we're an heir to for Abraham's? We're going to inherit what promise? Isn't it a promise not only to be part of the family of God, but be to inherit the land? And what land is that? That's the earth. But Jesus actually makes it more interesting. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 8, starting verse 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, Now notice this. A slave has no permanent place in the family but a son belongs to it forever. So he's making a distinction here. Who's part of the family? Who's not part of the family? Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. What's important to the Jews? What's the thing they keep track of? What's the thing you read in the opening of the book of Matthew and the book of Luke? The genealogy of Christ. It's all about the genetic family. Okay, He's telling them, if you're a slave to sin, you're not part of the family. Well, you can say, well, that's just the family of God. Okay, because the family of God and the heirs of Abraham are biblically or spiritually the same. But notice what he says next. So there's no illusions here. He just said, if you're, if you're a slave to sin, you have no permanent place in the family. But a son belongs to it forever. Then he goes on. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me. Because you have no room for my word, I tell you the truth. Uh, I am telling you that what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do and you do what you have heard from your Father. Notice, he's calling immediately, he's calling up their genetic history. You, I know you're Abraham's descendants. I know your biological offspring. I'm telling you what the Father has told me. You're listening to your Father, which isn't Abraham and isn't the Father. Well, they understood exactly what Jesus meant, and they protested. Their words replied back to Jesus, Abraham is our father. Notice Jesus' response, disallowing the criteria that genetics determines whether you're a descendant of Abraham. Jesus disallows this. Notice his response: If you were Abraham's children, Jesus said, then you would do the things Abraham did. Genetics doesn't determine whether I see you as Abraham's kids. Having faith and obedience that Abraham had determines. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did no such thing. You are doing the things of your own, your own father does. Again, Genetics isn't determining your parentage or your heritage or your descendants. What, what determines it is who you identify with as the one that you follow, the one whose principles you internalize into your life. That's who your father is. But again, they protest. Now they elevate it. They elevate the question. It's not Abraham. Notice what they say next. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Notice Jesus' response. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and now I'm here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear, comprehend, understand. You are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Genetics is irrelevant to the question of whether God sees you as a descendant of Abraham and an heir according to the promise. It's not relevant. What is relevant is if you have the faith of Abraham and trust God and follow where he leads like Abraham does. And if you if you understand this metaphor of Abraham, if you remember the the, the marriage supper, we will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a, there's a there's an object lesson there. Abraham had faith. Isaac was the promised or the miracle child, and Jacob wrestled with God and overcame. We have to have the faith to partake of the promised one so that we wrestle with our carnal nature in union with him and overcome Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. That makes us the children. So the promise to Abraham I see as a twofold regional application for the genetic descendants that they inherited the land and they got the land. They fulfilled the missions barely, barely fulfilled the mission, but Messiah, Messiah came and then they, of course, Spurned him, crucified him, and the house was left to them desolate. The promise moves on to all who will accept it, and all who accept Christ are heirs according to the promise and children of Abraham. And the next fulfillment of this uh, prophecy about inheriting the land, understand, the next fulfillment of the Genesis promise to Abraham about your descendants inheriting the land is not a nation on earth practicing coercive military tactics to kill their enemies with bombs and guns. That is not it. It is the children of Abraham, as Paul identified, inheriting the earth when Christ comes and creates it anew. That's the next portion of this. What about the idea that the lesson said the sprinkling of the blood implies the destiny of the party who breaks the covenant? Well, there's something seriously wrong with this. First off, which law lens is it operating through? It's the punishment, imperial law lens, but but think this through. Did Jesus break the covenant, or fulfill the covenant?
2: Fulfill
0: And what was the destiny of Jesus in fulfilling the covenant? Was it not to suffer as our substitute and die in our place? But for what purpose? Not to pay a legal penalty to an angry God who was just frothing at the mouth to kill us, but to remedy the sin problem, to cure it. To overcome it, to redeem Adam's failure, to be the second Adam, to uh, restore humanity back to God's original intention in creating Adam in Eden, so th- and to destroy death and bring life and immortality to light. Yeah, so the sacrifices with the sprinkling of blood, rather than saying this is a, rather than saying this is a warning, you better not break the agreement or else this is what will happen to you. It symbolizes the commitment that Jesus is coming to sacrifice himself, to be bruised, wounded, scourged, crucified, killed, to go through the grave and come out the victor, to overthrow Satan, destroy him and his power, perfect the species and restore us to unity with God. That's what it really is saying. It's a big different message. So what's being taught by the sprinkling of blood on the altar in the sacrificial system? Sacrificial system, animal sacrifice, blood sprinkled places. Where did Jesus say the blood needed to be placed or applied? John 6. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, there's no part with me. Jesus is applying it to the living temple. This is an object lesson. Carrying out in the blood, what's in the blood? The life is in the blood. And, and, and what does the flesh represent? John 1, the word was made flesh. The flesh represents the word of God, the truth about God, truth. And when we ingest an actual piece of meat or bread, the, the symbols were, the, the, the flesh was transferred to the bread and the wine was, uh, the blood was transferred to the wine, the, the two different symbols. But when you take a piece of bread or flesh, it becomes broken into little molecular pieces that begin incorporating into your body and become sort of the structure of your body. When you take in words of truth, those truths become pieces of constructs or ideas that form building blocks of beliefs and schemas and worldviews that you process reality through. And when you have enough truth that wins you to trust, the lies have been displaced, you trust God, you open your heart, you invite Him in. It says He pours His love into your hearts. No longer I live, but with Christ lives in me. And the life is in the blood. We get a new heart and a right spirit. We partake of the life of Christ. We live with new motives. That's the blood. It's it points to a reality, experiential reality, yes.
2: Interesting to me that the blood holds our code. The code for who what makes everything about us is in our blood, in his. And if you think of it in terms of computers, for example, it's it's like he created a virus removal. An
0: antivirus software.
2: An antivirus software and offers to download it into us and erase the virus that we're filled with and dying of. And the code was, and I just find it interesting that he picked blood as a metaphor, because that is our code. That is who we are.
0: Yes. And and let's, let's, let's keep exploring this question. Fifth paragraph. It says, when Israel broke the covenant, God faced a painful dilemma. The covenant demanded the death of the transgressors, but God loved His people. If God should simply over, if God should simply look the other way or refuse to punish the transgressor, His commandments would never be enforceable, and this would and this world would descend into chaos. I got to tell you, I don't like this paragraph. I had real problems with this paragraph. It, it upset me. It made me angry. Do you know why it made me angry? Because it said bad things about my heavenly father. It said bad things about my heavenly father. Misrepresented him. How would you feel if you had a loving, really good, gracious, godly father on earth and somebody went around telling people in the, in the press and on, on media outlets that your father was molesting kids and it wasn't true? Would it make you angry to hear that? Yes. This makes me angry because it misrepresents my father in heaven. First off, it says God was in a dilemma. Was God, in it? Did, uh, God didn't know what, what the response was going to be? It's like, oh, that took me by surprise. I never anticipated it. I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> I'm going to buy now. Or he knew exactly how they would respond. He already made every plan, every provision, every um, uh, inter- intercession and intervention necessary to deal with all. He, wasn't in, he knew exactly. He wasn't in a dilemma. Did the, the covenant, in the statement, covenant demanded the death of the tra- transgressor? True or false? False. This is a lie. This is false. This is based on, again, imperial law. This is human law concept. What did demand the death of the transgressor? Not the covenant. The sin. 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 Yeah. Okay? Because what is sin? What is sin? You can use any Bible translation you want. Sin is? Transgression. Transgression of the law. Which takes you to the next question. What law? Now, that goes right back to the question. Law like humans make up, nothing actually inherent law. You can break God's law. It doesn't actually harm you in any way, but you do get in trouble with the heavenly magistrate, and he gets upset, and he has all, all power, and he can use his power to punish and hurt you, but if he didn't, you could live forever in sin because sin actually doesn't hurt you. That's what the penal legal view you teaches. It's, the problem is not the sin. The sin is not harmful. The problem is God's attitude towards the sinner once you sin. Or maybe he still loves you, but his requirements to enforce the laws we're reading here. The law demanded and he had to enforce it, because if he didn't, they'd just be cast. So he has to uphold it and he's got to. Again, the punishment comes out from. But that's not scripture. Scripture is very clear on this. The wages of sin. Yeah. Not the payments of God. Sin when full grown brings forth. That James on those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature re- from where? from that nature they reap destruction yes is God his law? pardon? is
1: God his law?
0: yeah God's law God's law is an expression of his character but is it who
1: he is? is? is God his law? is the moral law who God is? is it his nature? his law? no his character or is he separate from his law? Or is it, in fact, who God is?
0: My view of God's law is that God's law is an outworking of his person. Yeah. See, the Bible teaches it is who he is. So it's an outworking of his person. I'll give you an example. Like,
1: when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he says, I am who I am. That's like A equals you know, A or something. And Yahweh is my name. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. When he reveals the law at Sinai, I am the Lord your God who and then he gives content to the other side. I am this. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I am a moral being. So when we separate God from his law, what we do is the law becomes an external agent.
0: So so I have to clarify. Did you did you did you hear me did you hear me saying something that was separating God from his law? Oh, no, I'm asking the question, no. I'm just trying to see where you're I just want to clarify. Because I was not separating God from his law. I was separating God from the from Satan's mischaracterization of his law. No, I'm not challenging you. I'm just
1: asking. If Jesus proceeds and comes forth from the bosom of the Father, like John 1-8 says, at the heart of what God is, the Word is, he is the Word. He is the law. The law of God is Christ. They're, they're inseparable. The one who spoke the law is the law. The lawgiver is the law. So we speak about whatever the law does, it's God who does it. God is his law. That's, that's how the scripture teaches that.
0: So, that. so that goes right to the heart of what we're saying. How do you understand law? Do you understand law like humans make up, like sinners make up, a list of rules that require external use of force to hold accountable for? Or do you understand law like God, we're called to worship him as our creator? The builder of space, time, energy, matter, life itself. The laws upon which all reality operate. Whether they're physical laws, like the law of gravity and the laws of physics or the laws of health. Or whether they're the moral laws. Any law that comes from God is a design law. It's how life is built to function. Harmony with them heals and is healthy for us. Disharmony with them brings injury, pain, suffering, and death. So... As the scriptures say again, sin is the source of pain, suffering, and death. God is not the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death for sin. There's a difference. I have no problem with God being, uh, God's law being an exact expression. Ellen White used the word, um, uh, the, uh, the law is an expression of God's character. Yep, I have no problem with that when we understand the law correctly there's a big problem with it though when we project our Roman view of law imperial law rules made up and God becomes a rule enforcer and therefore uh, sin is no longer an inherent condition With as the scripture teaches we're dead in trespass and sin we have a terminal condition with which we didn't choose none of us in this room chose to be a sinner We were born sinners. We were born in a terminal condition inherited from Adam and Eve. And Christ came in order to overcome the condition and restore humanity back into harmony with God's law, God himself at one mint, where we have eternal life. The species was reconciled or restored to perfection in the person of Jesus Christ, who was a real human being, and that simultaneously opened the door for all individuals to partake in his victory and experience his victory in us, that we can be reconciled to God in reality, in heart and mind. Have his law written in the New Covenant in the heart and mind. Yes. Which is a living law. And this is very important. It's a living law. It is not a rule. It's a living law.
1: God is his law. The law was taken from, 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 from stone, yet God is the rock in Deuteronomy 32. He is the living law that begot them, it says in Deuteronomy Here's my question. And his law is love. That's right. See, Paul says the law, sin, law is the power of sin, which create which leaves someone in the grave. I just want to ask you this question. If God is his own law, does God enforce who he is? Does he implement his nature in the created order? Or does he is he passive when he doesn't do that? Does Does he implement his nature by speaking, acting, and doing? Or does he hold it at bay?
0: So one of the elements of his law and his nature, I'm gonna say uh yes, he implements his nature, and one and one of and one of his laws or nature is love, and love requires one of his laws, liberty or freedom. So one of the things we can be dogmatic about when it comes to God and the way he has run his universe is that God never violates our freedom. Because to violate our freedom incites rebellion, destroys love, turns people into robots, and uh, and it effaces it, 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 it the image of God in people. God won't do that. This is why God cannot save a person without the willful participation of the person. He can't do it. It requires your free consent and cooperation with God, and a person can never be saved by their own willpower or their own initiative. It requires a full interaction with God and all that he's done for us. Uh, because that's part of his law. And so if you want to be dogmatic about God's law, one of the things you need to be dogmatic about is liberty. And, and I want to keep going here, because I think we'll unpack this some more if we, can, if we can keep going with some of these things. Are God's commandments only binding because God stands behind them with a flaming sword at our throat, threatening to enforce the law if we disobey? Is that where they're binding? Or as suggested, they're binding because God is his law. He creates all reality, and all the reality that he creates operates on his law. But if you break his law, you're actually taking yourself out of harmony with God and God's order. And there's no life there. There's only death there. There's darkness there, as the Bible describes, light and darkness, these kinds of metaphors. If God had refused to act after Adam sinned, Adam sins in Eden, God refuses to take any action at all. Do human sinners live eternally in sin?
2: Yeah. In the-
0: incorrect. In the- if God refuses to take any action at all, sinners will die. But
1: they eaten life,
0: so what is this? this? This goes to the myth, the myth of the tree of life. When I say myth, I think it's real, but the mythological application of what I think it means. The tree of life is not the source of life. God is the source of life. (laughs) The tree of life was a mechanism, a vehicle, a tool that God used to provide physiological health. But but the tree of life is not the source. If we could just get the tree of life and run off to a corner of the universe, we could have eternal life without God. That ain't happening.
2: But it does say we've got to protect the tree of life from these sinners or they will live eternally a sin.
0: It doesn't say that. Well, it doesn't say that. That You just read into it. It's so, there, so there will not be an immortal sinner.
2: Yeah, immortal okay. sinner. Immortal sinner. And, and immortal is what?
0: Okay, so...
2: <laughs> Never die. right? So... Uh, <laughs>
0: the myth, the myth. All right, so is your position this? If they had access to the tree of life, Cain could not have killed Abel. He couldn't have crushed his head. His head would not be crushed. You couldn't behead anybody. If somebody developed nuclear weapons in a sinful world and we blew up a nuclear weapon in this room, but we all ate the tree of life two seconds beforehand, we wouldn't actually be vaporized anymore. The, the laws of physics would pro- uh, no, this has nothing to do with that. What it has to do with is what the Bible says. If you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, the language there is dying, you will die means you will decay and die. And if you look at the commentaries, that's what they describe, a decaying death, aging, okay? And so what would have happened if they had access to the tree of life in a selfish, sinful world? Who do you think would control access to that tree? The most kind, gracious, loving, forgiving, gentle people or the most selfish, controlling uh, Hitlers and Stalins and people like this? Okay? He took it away so we wouldn't have this perpetual evil and he actually shortened their lifespan after the flood for the same reason so that he would constrict or restrain the, the, the power of the actual rebels to harm others in this world. So back to the question, what would have caused death? You won't find anywhere in Scripture that the Bible says the, the uh, wages of sin is punishment from God. You won't find it. The Bible's very clear. And the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18, being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness over and over again. Therefore, God let them go. He gave them up. This is what sin does. When you sin and you won't be reconciled, God leaves you free, law of liberty, to reap what you've chosen. And if life comes from God and we choose absolute separation from Him, is there life there? Death. No. There's death there. That's the reality. It's very simple, very straightforward. So God, creator of life, created life to operate in perfection without any flaws. Rebellion from that, those laws, or the laws upon which life operate, result in pain, suffering, and death. Christ came to reconcile that or fix that. Let's go to Monday's lesson. There's, there's several more really important things I wanted to get to out of these metaphors from Hebrews. Um, it says, Jesus' first paragraph, Jesus' death provides provided forgiveness or remission. Forgiveness, comma, or remission. So I think that's a clarifying saying, or remission, means another way of saying forgiveness. Okay, the, the, Jesus, That's what they're saying. Jesus' death provides forgiveness or remission of our sins. The remission of our sins, however, involves much more than cancellation of the penalty for our transgression of the covenant. It involves other elements just as important. A couple of things. Are we in trouble because we broke the covenant? That's what it said. Penalty, much more than... It says, However, it involves much more than the cancellation of the penalty for our transgression of the covenant. This is not our problem. Adam and Eve had the option and ability in their own strength... Without external help from God in Eden to develop a sinless, righteous, perfect human character and say no to temptation, they had the ability in Eden to do that. Yes or no? Have any of you had that ability? Any of you decide from from a state of sinlessness to choose to become a sinner? We were born in sin, conceived in iniquity, Psalms fifty-one. The problem with, with the penal substitution model is they constantly misdiagnose, they use the wrong law to diagnose the problem wrong as a legal problem, which makes it a behavior problem. Rather than understanding reality that we were born in sin, we have a condition we didn't choose of sinfulness that results without remedy from God. If we're not participating with God, we will have symptoms of that condition. And that, and those symptoms are called sin. sins. And those sins reveal that we're out of harmony. We're, 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 we're destroying ourselves. This is what Jesus tried to say. He taught him in Matthew 5. You say if you commit adultery, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad act, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. He's telling us that the behaviors are symptomology of hearts that are no longer operating on His law. It's not written in their heart. That's the condition. We're not guilty for this. Because we never had a choice not to be this way from birth. We have a choice as sentient beings to choose to partake of Christ that recreates us and be reborn in righteousness. So we are not condemned for being born sinners. We will be condemned for rejecting the remedy of Jesus Christ. So are forgiveness and remission the same thing? It depends on how you define the words. Some people use the term forgiveness in a global sense of the entire transaction of taking a sinner and restoring him completely to righteousness. And when they use the word forgiveness, they they mean the entire restoration to righteousness. Most of us don't use it that way, but it is used that way in some places. If we use it that way, then, then then they're similar. But if we use it in the more common vernacular of forgiveness, these are not the same thing. Can a person have their sins forgiven by God and not have their sins remitted? In other words, their sins remain, remain in their hearts, minds, and characters. How about those who crucified Christ? Did he forgive their sins? Did he have authority on earth to forgive sins? Were their sins remitted? Or did they remain his enemies and continue to crucify him? So God's personal forgiveness of our sins is not equal to remitting them. When you think about remission, when cancer goes into remission, you go gone to your oncologist, you've got cancer, and you want it to go into remission. Are you seeking for the oncologist to forgive you for having cancer? That's <laughs> not so what you're seeking. What are you seeking? You're seeking the cancer cells to remit back to their previous healthy precancerous state. The remission of sin is having sinfulness in humanity remit back to godly perfection that he actually created humans to be in Eden. That's the remission of sin. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. 100% true. Without the, li- the human life, death, and resurrection of Christ, what His accomplished as a human being, sin in humanity could not remit. It's only through the work of Jesus that that's possible. The the lesson says that he came to cancel the penalty for sin. To cancel the penalty. It it says it it involves more, but part of it, it says it involves more than the canceling of the penalty. But if it's involving more, it means it also is involving the canceling of penalty. This is not biblical. The Bible doesn't teach that. John the Baptist says, the Lamb of God who takes away the penalty of God for sin. That's not what the Bible says. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to take away the sin condition, the sinfulness, the carnal nature, the rebellion, the distrust, the selfishness. He came to take it away, to destroy it, to eradicate it. That's what he came to do. And if you take away the... If you want to use the medical model, he came to take away the cancer of the world. And if he took away the cancer... And it's remitted, then there's no longer penalty because the wages of sin is death. And if the sin has been remitted, then there's no more death wage to pay. It's not a penalty.
1: Penalty idea is almost an external described events rather than
2: intrinsic.
0: That's exactly right. Penalty language typically we, leads us down the human law model rather than consequence language or outcome language which leads us down the design law model. There is a penalty if you jump off the Empire State Building. There is a penalty for that. And and I understand it is actually illegal in the statutes of the state of New York to jump off the Empire State Building. They passed a law against that. (laughs) But the penalty for doing it, we all understand very quickly, is not a fine or a citation you will get from the police officer with your squashed remains on on the ground. That is not the penalty. The penalty comes from, from stepping off the building and putting yourself out of harmony with how gravity works and, and the laws of health and laws of physics. These are design laws. This is, this is what happens. So where does sin exist and occur? Does sin exist and occur in record books or in living beings? Hearts. Hearts and minds. So to take away sin of the world, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world... If he's going to take away the sin of the world, is he taking away a historical document, a record? No. no, because sin doesn't occur there. It can be recorded. We have scripture of David. We can have a record of what David did. But sin, when you pick up your Bible, you are not holding sin. Your Bible is not sin. It can record the sins of people, the historical facts of what... But the sin happened in David's heart and mind. In order to take away sin, you have to remove the sinfulness from the living being in order to take away the sin. And that and will put sin into remission. Then why the shedding of blood? Why was it required? It was the only means whereby God could actually uh, destroy the infection of fear and selfishness that Adam caused the human species to experience by his by his choice it's the only way tempted in every way like we are yet without sin each one of us are tempted more dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires james 1 He was tempted with human emotions and passions in Gethsemane, anguishing in ways we could never fully comprehend. And yet with each temptation, he chose, instead of acting to protect self, instead of acting to use power to throw off his enemies, instead of acting uh, to pull himself down off the cross, which he was tempted to repeatedly, he chose, no one can take my life, I give it freely. He chose to live out, fulfill, to embody the law of God, the law of love perfectly restoring the living law, the law upon which life is built, he restored it into the humanity that he took upon himself. And this is why he rose again. This is why it's very interesting if you understand design law and how it works. He could say to his disciples over and over again, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be be handed over. I'm going to be be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise on the third day. He said this multiple times. Ellen White says he could not see through the portals of the tomb. So how is he saying this? Because he was not given prophetic vision. He wasn't, he didn't see the future like Daniel saw in, in vision or like John saw in vision. He didn't see the future in Saul's victory that way as a human. As somebody saw, he understood the law upon which God built life to operate and understood, as it says in Psalms 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, (laughs) reviving or giving life to the soul. He knew that the cause of death was disharmony with the law of life. He knew God's law was the actual protocol of life. He knew when he lived it out perfectly and eradicated the death-causing condition, he would rise again. It was the inevitable outcome. He could predict it like this. How many of you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? It's very predictable. You don't have a prophetic vision of the future. You know the law. You can predict the outcome. Jesus knew that his accomplishments would restore life To the humanity he assumed and he would rise. That's reality. That's God's law. Yes.
2: In Isaiah um, 53, it predicts that we will misunderstand. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities, he carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we're healed.
0: Exactly. And, it's, and the entire Christian world, this is, prophecy is exactly right, has historically been teaching that God punished Jesus in our place. Law required it. Somebody had to die. God killed them. Rather than Jesus um, became sin, though he knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, he overcame the death-causing condition and restored the life-causing condition into the human species, if you like, the, like that language. So it talks about the different, burnt, uh, different types of sacrifices and what they represent. And, and all, remember, all the animal sacrifices is symbolic. Burnt offering, the entire, the entire animal was, uh, was sacrificed and burned up. Uh, this is a theatrical enactment that simply teaches that sinfulness carnal nature, if you like that language, must be destroyed. The carnal nature must be eradicated. The lies are burned up with truth. Selfishness is burned up by love. The Holy Spirit, the fire represents the Holy Spirit uh, and, uh, and represents the consuming of everything that is out of harmony uh, with, with God. And, and so the burnt offering represents the, the burning away of all the old and, and a new life. The peace offering uh, is symbolic of Jesus who bridged the divide Overcame where we could not, and brought peace. Those are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So we so it represents that, that restoration of that one minute or peace. And then the purification offering, this is where the sinner would come, confess his sin on the head of the animal, and, and the sinner would cut the throat, not the priest. Okay, the sinner. Okay, there's this is symbolic. What does the Bible say about the blood? The life is in the blood. What does the blood do? It circles. This is the law of love lived out. This is the principle of giving. Uh, it just goes round and round, and the circle is represented of the principle of love. Sin severs the design, severs the circulation, and when you sever God's design, the, the blood then flows out and death ensues. So it's a symbolic way of acting. My sin breaks God's design for life and results in death. But God so loved us, he sent a substitute to take the sin condition upon himself and overcome that condition and restore us to the life condition. Okay, and so the blood then is taken to different points of the uh, sanctuary, symbolically representing whether you're a non-priest Jew. Then the blood was taken to the brazen altar, applied to the large horns, and poured out at the base, symbol- uh, sim- symbolizing. Brazen altar is bronze or or brass. Is a is a. Um it's a combination. It, yeah, it, it's a combination, but what's the word for combination? An amalgamation, a, a mixture, meaning it's impure, it's not a pure metal. It, so it, it symbolizes the impure heart, the heart of the unconverted, and all the other tribes represented the unconverted people. The, and that's where the blood got presented for their sin offering. The priests, however, in their white robes represent the converted the people who are on Christ's side. And when they confessed sin, it was not taken to the brazen altar. It was taken to the golden altar. And the golden altar represents the heart of the converted. And the little horns on the golden altar are much smaller than the horns on the brazen altar, symbolizing the vestigial or remnants of uh, of the struggles that we still have with sin that we're overcoming through God's grace. It also was sprinkled seven times before the veil because um, it represents the... Uh, when, when we as Christians sin... We add to the misrepresentation of God and make it harder for people to see the Shekinah or the glory of God. And so it takes the, the, the righteousness of Christ to overcome our own misrepresentations and reveal the truth about God. So it's seven times before the veil. Those were kind of just very quick and overviews. Let's, let's, let's go to Wednesday's lesson and try to get a couple of important pieces out of the way. Um, the lesson states that God is the judge of his people. When we read about judgments of God or God being a judge, do you see God as being a judge in the same way a human judge is a judge? Because this is the common way it's viewed, and it all goes back to which law you have. Uh, do God's uh, human judges determine guilt and innocence? They rule guilt and innocence. They determine punishments and they and they and they sentence. That's how human laws work. Does God's judgment function that way? Does God's judgments determine our guilt and innocence?
2: We already are. Bye.
0: Does God's judgments determine who's saved and not saved? Understand it's not the same thing as a human law court. Ever, it's never been. If if God's judgment doesn't determine our guilt and innocence, if God's judgment doesn't determine who's saved and lost, then what are God's judgments? Bye. <laughs> diagnoses. He accurately diagnoses or judges what's real. That's what he does. He's, his judgments are always right, but in Scripture, when you come to questions and words like this, always ask the question, what law lens am I looking through? Am I interpreting Scripture through the human law model and a human court system? which has corrupted the Adventist message terribly. We have failed in taking our message to the world because we have primarily taken it as a heavenly Roman or, or U.S. judicial system operating in the heavenly realms. And if we set it right back to worship him who made the heavens and the earth and his laws His design laws, all these truths take entirely new shape and new visions open to the reality. Let's go through real quick the four judgments in Scripture. By the way, if you read in Scripture, anytime you find judgment as a a, a judge ruling and determining guilt and innocence, that's always in a human law system. It never represents God's kingdom in Scripture, ever, and I will show you. But you will find the human law worked out in Moses judging the people in Solomon judging whose, uh, whose baby the, the baby was, in Pilate judging Jesus and sentencing him. These are human law systems. But in Scripture, judgments, there are four judgments in Scripture. Four judgments. The first judgment, when I say first, the first judgment in human history is our judgment of God. And that's in the Garden of Eden when Satan began lying. Adam and Eve had to make a judgment. Do I believe that God is good and righteous and faithful, or do I believe what the serpent said? Uh, They had to make a judgment about God. You see this judgment, uh, and, and by the way, in the salvation process, our judgment of God is the starting point of our salvation process. Do I judge him trustworthy? You see this throughout all of the Old Testament and New Testament Scripture. At Carmel, who was being judged at Carmel? Elijah said it, if Yahweh is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And here's some evidence for you to decide. Make a judgment. Joshua said the same thing, right? Called the people. Make a judgment. Over and over again, God allows his people to make a judgment about him. The Apostle Paul states it explicitly in Romans 3, 4. This is what Romans 3, 4 says. You can look up any translation you want. This is the New King James Version. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and you may overcome when you are judged. God is the one in the great controversy. Satan in heaven lied about God and every intelligent being had to decide. Is God like Satan says he is? Or is God like Jesus revealed him to be? We have to make a judgment. And this is the first judgment in the three angels message. Fear God. Be in awe of him and glorify him in the world right now because the hour in human history has come for people to make a right judgment about God. The hour of his judgment has come. People have been misjudging him as imperial and Roman and authoritarian and inflictor of pain and suffering or torture people in hell for all eternity. The dark age is God. We need to throw him off and worship our creator who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all. In this. It's time to make the right judgment. That's the first judgment. Second judgment in scripture is God's judgment's of what is therapeutically required to bring about the plan of salvation. And this is twofold. There are two two, two places he makes these judgments. First is in Old Testament times he made many judgments that were necessary to keep open the avenue for Messiah because Satan is working to shut down the plan of salvation. We find the first one of these major judgments at the flood. God judges that there's only one righteous man left on the earth. Every other human being has hardened their heart. If Satan has his way, these wicked people will, will destroy Noah and there's no one left to work with me. I'm not going to force a woman to have a, have a pregnancy she doesn't want. I'm not going to have a woman like Jezebel be the mother of Jesus. I've got to have a righteous volunteer host or else I can't bring Messiah. And God judges. I must intervene. Put the world to sleep. Not as an act of hate or vengeance, It's not even the punishment for, quote, sin, because that doesn't come to after the judgment, and that is an eternal death, and these people are going to be raised. This wasn't even the punishment for sin. This was a judgment of what was necessary for the plan of salvation, the promise of Genesis 3.15 to be carried out. And you find this repeatedly in the Old Testament, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the the other cities. Without those cities to influence the people of Israel, by the time Jesus came, we've only got two tribes. Ten have already been assimilated into the pagan systems around them, most of them. And so I think God looked down and said, we've got to excise this much. If we don't excise this much necrosis, the necrosis will take over and Satan will succeed in stopping the plan of salvation. So we see God's judgments. And and if you read in Ellen White's writing, she talks explicitly about the judgments of God. If they will not respond to his mercy, his grace, his favor, his warnings, then he speaks to them in judgments. And the judgments are the therapeutic interventions to keep open avenue and to bring salvation. That's the first aspect of the uh, second judgment. And the other aspect of it we read about, and you might be familiar with this, and I wish we had time to go into great detail up, about it, but I will tell you, this is the investigative judgment. And the investigative judgment, if you haven't read it, uh, go to our website, or if you're in here, I've got this one here, and I've got a couple more, or we'll ship them anywhere with the U.S. Postal Address. But the Heavenly Sanctuary and Investigative Judgment for the Modern World, we have these. But Malachi refers to this. This is the investigative judgment. It's also therapeutic. Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord we'll have men who will bring offerings and righteousness and offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord In the as in days gone by in the former years, so I will come near to you for judgment. This is the, uh, according to one of the founders of Adventist church named Ellen White, she says this is referring to the exact same event as Daniel eight fourteen. These are the same event. 2,300 years and the sanctuary will be cleansed. Well, he comes to the temple for cleansing. And what's being cleansed when he comes to the temple? The people are being cleansed. Their hearts and minds are being prepared to see him face to face when he comes. Because when he comes, we will be like him. This is, and so we, we go into great detail in here describing and laying it out, the process of these judgments... Judging, diagnosing what's wrong, what keeps you from being able to see me, uh, because you trust me, what needs to change, and the Lord working in our hearts to clean up and change and cleanse our hearts and minds so that we can see Him face to face. The third judgment in Scripture is the judgment that the righteous make during the thousand years. Revelation twenty four through six. And I saw thrones in which uh, were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Uh, Paul talks about this in First Corinthians six. Do you not know that you will judge angels? This Judgment of the righteous during the thousand years does not determine guilt or innocence. Get your mind. We're not judging them and they're saying, do you give me a pardon and I can come to heaven? Or, or do you find me guilty and I can't come? We are not determining their destiny. We're not determining their guilt or innocence. That's not what this judgment is. This is not a, this is not a judicial process. It's not a legal judgment. We are judging why. Why, if God loves every human being as much as he loves you and me, why aren't they also saved? Why? We're judging how God's law, which is an expression of his person, operates and functions, what sin actually does, and why some are lost when God doesn't want them to be lost. This is what we're judging. How could it be so that we are all settled and it will never rise again? And then the fourth judgment is the judgment that occurs at the end of the thousand years, what some call the great white throne judgment. And it says in Revelation 20, 11 and 12, I saw a great white throne and him seated on it. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what had been done as recorded in the books. Some will read this and think it's a judicial process because they assume. But if you read widely in scripture, and I've got in my notes all the scripture references, which are multiple, what is actually recorded in the in these books according to scripture? the names of the people and Bible symbolism and name represents Church. character. These are the characters of the people or actual individual. If you want to use the software metaphor, it is the individuality of the person recorded there so that when your when your computer runs out of power, it goes into sleep mode. When the Bible says uh, that when we uh, die the first death, we go into sleep mode. Okay, And how about if you have your machine your machine backed up on a cloud and somebody destroys your machine, your computer. Are you really too distressed? You can get a new machine. We went the data. Jesus said in Matthew 10, don't be afraid of the one who can destroy the body but can't destroy the soul, psyche, individuality, software, data, identity, personhood. And when people die, their individuality is safely secured with Christ in heaven. And so He says in Thessalonians, when he returns, he brings with him those who have fallen asleep, but those same dead are coming up out of the grave because he's given them upgraded hardware, new bodies, immortal bodies, and he downloads their individuality to it. And so this investigative judgment is Christ eradicating all the defects from the software so that when he raises the righteous and and, and, and delivers the living saints, we are able to see him face to face. And it's only for those who trust him. Those are the four judgments. All right, we're going to close our prayer and then we'll go to our Q&A time. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for the beautiful truth that you've revealed to us in Scripture and the life of Christ, for what you've accomplished, for the way your kingdom and law works. We ask that you will pour your spirit out into our hearts and minds and take the victory of Christ. Write your law in our hearts and minds that we can live for you at this time to bring you glory in how we treat treat others and practice your methods and that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.